Well, I've heard a lot this last couple days about starting the new year. You have too, right? We've just turned the corner and this is like the second day of the year um, of 2022. And I heard a ton of people talk about this last year, 2021, and how bad it was and how difficult it was. And 2020 was even crazier. And, and I've heard so many people talk about just wanting to get back to normal, just wanting to go back to the way things were. And I don't know about you, but I've been paying attention and I remember the way things were. And I don't think many of us liked things the way things were that much, even in the first place. I remember that there were still lots of problems and lots of challenges in our world and our society. I remember that we had struggles individually in our congregation and struggles that, that existed even before this pandemic. It's easy for us to blame this pandemic in the last two years and all the craziness to blame it for everything. But I remember I was thinking about two years ago and thinking about the challenges that we face in our world. And there were still lonely people, still depressed, still hurting, still people who drank too much, still people whose marriages were breaking up, still people who were looking for meaning, still people who were having a hard time making it work financially, still people who were struggling with, with health and, and there were still the things going on two years ago that, that we have going on today. And we think if we could just go back, things would be better. In reality, things aren't better by going back. We have to go forward. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Life is about going forward. It's about one foot in front of the next. It's about making today what today needs to be and allowing tomorrow to become even better than today. It's about living for Jesus. And so that's what I wanna to talk to you about in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, it talks about that. It talks about one foot in front of the other. It talks about new beginnings. It talks about living life a different way. And I think we can identify quite a bit with this book, with these letters and with this church that these letters were written to. So for those of you who've grown up in church, who've been around a while, you're probably familiar with Corinthians. For those of you who aren't, I wanna tell you a little bit about the church in Corinth because there are two letters that were written to the church in Corinth that are included in our Bible, probably more letters that the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, but two of them uh, were important enough for it to be included in our Bible, inspired words of God. And these two are first and second Corinthians. And so this church, this church in Corinth was a church that the apostle Paul founded. He was a church planter and he founded this church on his second missionary journey. Now, for those of you who don't know what I mean when I say missionary journey, I mean this guy who was a pastor used to travel in places where they didn't have churches. He went on several different journeys and they numbered them because they wrote about them. So he had a first journey, he had a second journey. Well, you get the idea. On his second journey, he stopped for about 18 months in the city of Corinth and he started a church. And the city of Corinth was a city that was, it was kind of messed up. And the reason I wanna to talk to you about this messed upness is because I love to be able to relate and to identify. And I think that if I talk to you a little bit about this church and this city of Corinth, you'll be able to relate and to identify. I chuckle a little bit when people talk about how bad our world is today and Oh my goodness, it's so bad, it's getting worse. It's never been this bad in the history of humankind. And I'm like, man, you don't study history if you think it's as bad now as it's ever been. You have very little concept of world history and, and not really a grasp of the way things used to be because I'm gonna tell you, friends, things have been pretty messed up in the past. And they may be challenging now, but I'm talking about messed up in the past. Well, this is one of those places that was messed up. As a matter of fact, 
there was a word that was coined um, for people who were misbehaving, for people who were deviants, for people who were really um, shady. They called these people Corinthians. They named a whole category of person after the city. Kind of like, I guess we would New Orleans, right? I mean, New Orleans gets a bad rap. I enjoy New Orleans, but I mean, there are parts of New Orleans in certain times of the year where it's pretty rough. And so if you did something really bad and I wanted to be judgmental, which I do not, I would say, ooh, you're a New Orleans and or something, and you'd know what I meant. So it, it doesn't translate great from our times to the times when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, but he was writing to a church in a city that was known for corruption. It was a capital city of a Roman province. It was a rich city. Good gracious. It had income and trade, and it was bustling with activity, but there were also mafias that ran the city. There were families crime families that controlled the commerce. If you crossed a family, you could get killed. Some of it just had to do with blood. Some of it had to do with religion, which by the way, was also messed up. The Bible tells us and history tells us that the religion in the, the city of Corinth, oh, you think we have some weird religions today. They had a temple in Corinth. It was the temple of the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of fertility and they had prostitutes that would help you worship at the temple to make you more fertile. And I'm talking about messed up. And it wasn't like it was just a couple of people in the sort of outskirts of society that sort of snuck in, you know, to the temple. I'm talking about most Gentiles. Well, no, most is probably not fair. Many people were involved in this. Not to mention the 20 something other crazy religions that went on. Some so messed up that they only operated behind closed doors. Now that may pique your curiosity because if you could do all this other stuff out in the open, what in the world would be so bad that you would have to operate behind closed doors? So you had a corrupt political system, crime families that ran the city, religion that was all over the place, and a few Jews, but the Jews had become so irrelevant that nobody really paid them much attention. They were so concerned about what they did and didn't do, walking around being holy and being separate, that they lived their lives kind of hived off in this little clump. And they were just a speed bump in society, just an annoyance to the rest of the world. And the problem is they were the ones that say they spoke for God. Ignored, forgotten, overlooked, irrelevant. Well, the Apostle Paul, when he traveled to this city, he knew they needed a church, right? They needed saving. <laughs> we all need saving from ourselves. All of us in some way can relate. Not just to this city, but to the state of people as the Apostle Paul found them. And the apostle Paul, he met two people, Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. Just so happened the apostle Paul knew how to make tents and he didn't always get paid for what he did. Even though many places he was able just to minister and not have to be bivocational. But here he made tents with Aquila and Priscilla and he began to share the gospel. 
And people started listening. People confessed their sin, believed who Jesus is, and said, I'm going to live his way, not my way anymore. And this church started. And you may think that all of a sudden everything, the story, you know, got so much better, the picture so much clearer, that it was perfect, that everyone got saved and they were holy and they were nice and they were happy. And that's not at all what happened. This was reality, friends. This was a group of people who embraced Jesus and said, this is the way I want to live. But man, they were starting from somewhere that was going to take them some time. And this process of growing, of becoming, of leaving the past behind, of becoming a person who lives like Jesus, well, that's what the Apostle Paul wrote about. He wrote about steps of faith. He wrote about growing in our relationship with Jesus. And he hit on some themes that were really important because the church was very, very similar to society. They embraced and brought with them many of the same kinds of challenges and struggles. And in the church in first and second Corinthians, the apostle Paul challenged them and he challenged them about things that were similar to the things that were going on in society, just like you and I face. Immorality was one of the things that the apostle Paul, he challenged this church of Corinth about. He said, I know the way you guys used to live. I get it. Sex didn't mean anything. It was promoted, it was practiced, it was dismissed. You were consumers, you used, it didn't matter. But now it does. He says, there's a different way to live. And the people are like, what do you mean different? Get out of our personal space, Apostle Paul. This is my business, my body. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. There's two things you need to remember. So the first thing is that God created this, this sexual relationship for one man and one woman, a husband and a wife. So when they have relationships together, a relationship, a sexual relationship, it bonds them in a very unique way so that they together can serve the Lord in a very unique way through life, become partners. It's special, it means something. And the second thing is he said that this relationship this physical relationship, it mirrors the relationship Jesus has with the church and the connection that you have with one person who you've given your life to. Well, it's significant, it's symbolic, and it's powerful. So some would have asked the question, I haven't always lived this way. I've blown it in the past. I've messed up. The apostle Paul was quick to say, everyone has a past. It's not about where you've been. It's about what you're deciding to do today and where you're going. Well, he wrote about people in the church who were following different leaders in the church. In some cases, they were different families. In some cases, just strong personalities. And the church was being divided because people were getting twisted and, and taking sides and issues and being political. And the apostle Paul said, listen, we don't follow anybody but Jesus. Doesn't matter how long you've been here. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much influence you have. If you aren't following Jesus, we're not following you. He said, follow me as we follow Jesus. And he reminded people that the church wasn't about that. Well, he addressed legalism. 
Legalism was a huge problem in this early church. They had certain people who had come from a Jewish faith who felt like that you distinguished yourself by the behaviors that you chose not to do. Are you a Christian? Well, yes, I am. And this is how you know, because I don't do. And they would name off the list of things that they don't do. You ever been around somebody like that? Talk about obnoxious. I mean, that's like the, but people do it because it's easier to define our Christianity in ways that are superficial and external. And then if you move past the list of things they didn't do, then they would tell you the things that they did do. For us, it would be, I go to church every single Sunday, I give my tithe, I serve, I this, I that. They would name off this list. All the things were important, but none of them came from the heart. They all came from external obligation, from impression management. And the apostle Paul said, stop. Quit worrying about trying to manage other people's impressions of you. Live for Jesus, act from the heart. Be principled, quit judging. They had a church that was so diverse. You not only had Jews and Gentiles, but you had educated and uneducated. You had rich, you had poor. You had those who were from there and those who weren't from there. And just like any other organization or church, there was conflict sometimes. They said, hey, get along. Get along with each other. There's a bigger picture, something more important to focus on. These Christians were taking each other to court because they were getting in disputes and squabbles. He said, quit doing that. Solve your problems like gentlemen or people. Talk to each other, work it out. Great instructions. But my point with this introduction is to let you know that this church that the Apostle Paul is writing to is not perfect. I'm not perfect. These people were not super holy, super spiritual. Their Bibles didn't hover above the desk, right? They didn't have this holy glow about them. They were real people who made a real commitment to follow a real God and were really struggling. And the Apostle Paul viewed them in a way that was very important. He saw them as not the people they used to be, but he saw them for the commitment that they made and for the people they were becoming. And he didn't give up on them. So let's look together at 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. To the church of God in Corinth, I just described to you this church of God in Corinth. He called them two things, sanctified, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he talks about the church. The church is really simple. The church is not a building. The church is not an organization, even though we have to have organization in our society today. You know, the church is not a business, even though there's a side of church today in our world that has to be very business-like and orderly. The church is a gathering of people who gather together, people who worship or serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gather together in a group for a purpose. That's the church. So he writes this letter and he calls them something very important. He says to those people in our church who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now I'm gonna teach you some words. 
I'm gonna teach you three words. If you're a churchy, you know these words, just, um, I don't know, just uh, bear with me again for the next couple minutes. If you're not a churchy, I'm gonna explain it to you. You're gonna learn some systematic theology. When you go out and blow snow today, go over to your neighbor and lay these words on them. You'll sound very churchy, maybe even a little obnoxious and uh, see where that leads. Please don't do that. I'm gonna talk to you about three ifications, ifications. They're three different stages of life. Now, I just had a granddaughter. Well, I didn't have her. My um, daughter-in-law had her. Uh, I was there sitting in the waiting room, which I think was harder. She doesn't think that, but I felt like it was harder. And waiting in the waiting room, I mean, it was only a nine hour labor, which again, seemed like forever, but my wife had like a 26 hour labor with our first. So nine didn't seem that bad looking back in the rear view mirror. It was tough to wait. It was exciting to wait. And I remember being so nervous about holding my granddaughter for the very first time. I mean, she was brand new, right? My hands were all chapped and you know, I mean, I just, I felt like I just had to really, and, and I got to hold her for the very first time. And I remember, when my son Richard handed her to me and she just sat there, eight pounds, seven ounces, which to you may seem like a big baby. To me, it seemed gracious, fragile and breakable. I mean, eight pounds, seven ounces. And she didn't do much of anything except just be super cute and lovable. I mean, she made noises, right? And you're like, oh, look, isn't that cute? It's not cute at a certain age, but it was really cute when she was a baby, right? And at night, she was starting to go to sleep a little bit. And my son, Richard, he's like, dad, she's dreaming. Cause she's like, eh, 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 you know, doing her little baby things, Emory. And he said, wait a second, she can't be dreaming. I said, what you mean, Richard? He said, well, our dreams are like our experiences. There are our thoughts from the past and she doesn't have a past. She was born like a couple hours ago. What's she thinking about? So then we surmised for a minute about what she could possibly be thinking about. She didn't have any experiences, but what she had was a beginning and everything was new, right? Richard talked to me about cutting the cord and how crazy that was. He said, I had to cut her a cord. I think he called it an extension cord. We know what it means, right? <laughs> it was her life source. And then she had to breathe on her own. She had to take her first breath. And it may seem like, well, of course she did, but it's not like, of course you do when you're in a delivery room watching your daughter take their first breath. And then she starts breathing and then what does she do? Well, she makes her first movements. Then she eats for the first time. And then she sees her fingers for the first time and then pretty soon her toes. And then she begins to become aware for the first time that there are things that are eight inches or that exist beyond eight inches in front of her face. And, and she begins to recognize voices. And then at some point she starts to move or crawl and then walk for the first time. And there's a, a process and it began and it was beautiful. For her, it was December 13th. For you and I, we've had a beginning, sure a biological beginning, but also a spiritual beginning and when it began, everything was new for us and it started for the first time. That is called justification. When we become believers in Jesus Christ, we've been justified. What that means is, is that we've been saved from our sins through our faith in God's grace, that it wasn't anything we did to deserve it because if we did something to deserve it, we'd have to work to keep it and we're not smart enough or good enough to do that. But we've been saved, that we have confessed our sin believed who Jesus is and told him, I'm going to follow you, even though I know it's going to be a little bit tough. And so you begin a life of faith. 
And that's where this early church was in Corinth. They stepped into a new life from justification into sanctification, where the word sanctified comes from. Now, if you walk all the way down through your life to the end of your biological life, you hit another ification, which is glorification when you die or when Jesus comes again. And that's the eternal state that we'll spend our, the rest of our eternity in. We can't talk about that today, but there's a whole bunch of space in between the beginning and the end. If you go to a cemetery, you see two dates oftentimes. One's the beginning of your life, the next is the end, and there's a dash in between the two. And it's the dash that we're talking about, the dash that the Apostle Paul is talking about, the dash that propels you and I to be better, to be more devoted, to have softer hearts, sensitive spirits, to have 2022 be different than 2021. And to let Jesus, man, be glorified in some of the most weakest people like you and me, because that's what he does. So the apostle Paul looks at this church and he says, you're being sanctified. You know, what do you mean sanctification? Sanctification is the progressive work that God does in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And you may not always see it, but God's doing it. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that he, God, is faithful to complete the work he began in you. That he started something in you at the moment you became a Christian process of making you more like Jesus as you begin your new life through a series of firsts and seconds and thirds and as you grow and that God's doing it and that when we do it we have to do it together in a group because that's how he created us to live in a church in a herd and we're not the people we were yesterday but we're not the people who we're going to be tomorrow and it's this beautiful messy process it's the reason I make New Year's resolutions. I know many of you don't. I've been disappointed over the last few years when I ask you guys, how many of you make New Year's resolutions? Because there's so many who just don't raise their hands. Now, I understand that some of you don't raise your hands because you don't need to make resolutions because everything in your life is perfect. It's exactly the way you want it. And your goal for the next year is not to change at all, okay? I'm sure that there's some people who are like that. There are probably some people who don't make resolutions because you know you're probably gonna break them after four or five days. That's what, for those who go to the gym, we count on that, by the way, uh, after three or four weeks, you know, because the gyms get super full and then they you know, end up being super empty again. We just wait it out because we wait for all those folks to leave. Some of you maybe, you know, you don't make these resolutions, but you still have the desire to see something good happen and to grow. And that's where I trust all of us are. But I make these resolutions because I don't want to be the same. I think about sanctification. I think about growing together in Jesus. I think about not focusing on where we used to be. focusing on who we are right now and where we're going. And the apostle Paul looked at this unlikely struggling group of people and he said, God's working in you and he isn't going to quit. Who, me? Yep. Do I have to do it myself? And Paul says, you can't. Can't do it yourself, but you can help. So he has two letters that he wrote about how it is we can help put ourselves in a place where God can do amazing things through us. Now, there are four different questions that I've been asking myself 
that come from First and Second Corinthians. I've been spending some time over the last couple of weeks asking myself these questions because to me, they're the best barometers of whether or not I'm growing in my faith or whether I'm not. They're the best barometers that I have for whether or not I'm becoming more like Jesus or I'm becoming more selfish and self-absorbed. So I wanna share these things with you as a challenge and I wanna invite you with me into a journey that's going to last for the next 12 months where we focus on these themes together, watching God do amazing things in each other for his glory and not for ours. These four themes we're gonna focus on. These are the things I want you to evaluate yourself in and perhaps even set some goals in areas we might improve. So let's look together. Let's look up. Let's ask ourselves the question, who do we worship? Now, the churchy answer is, I worship God. And I would say, do you worship God? Now, that would be because I'd wanna have a conversation and ask questions and not be accusing or condemning. But I think that a lot of us don't worship God. I think we worship ourselves. And I think sometimes we do it in church. And I think many times we do it in our lives. Soren Kierkegaard, he wrote, we think of church sometimes kind of as a theater that we sit back in the audience and we attentively watch the actor on stage who draws every eye to himself. If entertained, we show gratitude with applause and cheers, but church should be the opposite of theater. That in church, when Christians gather together, right? When we get in, in a group together, in a room together, God is the audience for our worship and all of us are actors. That everything we do when we're together needs to be worship. Now, what do you mean worship? That's a churchy word. Worship means putting God in his rightful place and worship means making sure I'm in my rightful place. I'm not God. God is God. God is good. He's holy. He's perfect. He's merciful. He's loving. And he loves sinners just like me. Everything we do should be about worship. In our lives, it should be a reflection of worship. Some of us worship ideals. Some of us worship relationships. Some of us worship our jobs. Some of us worship our bank accounts. Some of us worship a political party. Some of us put other things in God's rightful place. And the apostle Paul reminds us, who do you worship? Well, there are three more questions. So I wanna take you through these reflective questions and they get progressively more thought provoking. And I love the last one. It's where I personally am stuck. Number two, who do you see when you look around? The church at Corinth was so diverse. 
I have already told you there were Jews, there were Gentiles. Among the Gentiles, there were those who had worshiped in all kinds of different crazy religions and those who had celebrated themselves. And there were those who were educated and those who weren't educated. And there were those that were from there and those that weren't from there. There were different races. And I mean, there weren't churches down the street. There weren't people who could say, I don't like this place. I'm going to go down the street and find a place I do like. I mean, there was one body of Christ and the apostle Paul, he didn't say, you know what you need to do to solve your problems? Find the people who are just like you and go meet in that small group. And as long as you're just like you and just like the people who are around you, you guys are going to be fine. But the apostle Paul said is the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so you take your diversity and that's where you meet. One of the scariest places to be is in a room with people who are just like you or just like me. If all of your friends look like you, act like you, drive the same kind of cars, vote the same kind of way. If when you look at the people who are around you and closest to you, they're carbon copies of you, you're in a scary place, my friend. Ignorance is being uninformed and one of the closest, the fastest, one of the most scary ways of being uninformed is to cut out every voice that may be a little different than the one in your head. And the apostle Paul said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so we have common faith with people who have a common faith. And the diversity brings spirited conversation and sometimes friction, but when two forces collide, they can wrestle or dance. And he said, the Holy Spirit can make the forces dance. Who do you see? One of the things I love about our church is we are so diverse. The backgrounds, the experiences, where we're from, and that diversity to me is beautiful and healthy. Number three, who do you serve? Now, this is a personal question. Again, if you wanna be churchy, you can say, I serve Jesus, right? I serve Jesus. Well, of course I serve Jesus, well, who do you serve? Well, as for me and my house, I serve the Lord. So my question would be, how? In 2021, how did you serve the Lord? Now, I don't know what answer comes back to you. I think if you're honest, and I'm only reflecting on my own introspection, I think sometimes I serve the Lord and perhaps sometimes I serve myself. And you know what, in 2022, I wanna serve the Lord far more than I ever served myself. One of the things that I love about our gathering of believers is that you can't be here for two or three weeks and not know who we serve. That God saved us to serve, that the church is organized for purpose. And as the Archbishop William Temple says, the church is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Actively seeking or serving, excuse me, others causes us to think less about serving ourselves, puts us in that right spot and makes worship even easier. So who do you serve? Love to spend more time on that. I don't have more time and I'm not skipping this last one. Here we go. Look within, who am I becoming? Now I've already asked this question to myself. So I'm gonna ask it in this way. Who are you becoming? 
If you're asking this question, then you ask the question like I do, who am I becoming? You get it, right? Personal, don't answer for your wife, your husband, your friend, your son or your daughter. This is personal, it's for you to answer, who am I becoming? Am I gradually absorbing a theology of grace? Because friends, I'm doing my very best to teach that every single week. I can't read the Bible any other way. Who's been watching football lately? Anybody? I can't get you to raise your hands for New Year's resolutions, but there have to be some football fans in here, right? Iowa may be a little disappointing this year in the last part of the season, but still, there are highlights for all of us if we're football fans. I was watching a game the other day where for most of the game, very, very competitive, a lot of athletes, a lot of hitting, a lot of throwing, a lot of running, a lot of grunting, a lot of coaching, blood, sweat, and tears, just like any good football game. And it all came down to one play at the very end of the game. It came down to a field goal kicker. Now I got nothing against kickers at all, except I wouldn't want to be one. There is pressure on these guys, pressure. Came down to a field goal kicker. Now this particular kicker, and this is not true for every kicker, this kicker didn't look like he played football. He came running out on the field, helmet was too big, his arms were tiny like he'd never been to the gym. It was like, come on, at least feed the kid, right? I didn't know where they kept him. He goes out and, and he lines up, you know, and he's always very official. He takes three steps back and he takes those steps to the side and points his toe, right? They do all this and they're ready to kick. And I know what's gonna happen, right? If he kicks the field goal without somebody calling timeout to try to freeze him, if he kicks it and makes it, he's on the shoulders of the other players. One of the linemen will pick him up with one hand and carry him around. Look, we got a little kicker that scored. Gatorade poured on his head. Gets to ride back in the front of the plane. Hits college campus and gets dates he had never had before, right? People want him to sign stuff and no one's ever cared about his signature before. He's a hero. And you also know that if he misses that kick, nobody gives him a high five. He gets dirty looks from large men who could crush him like a Coke can. Has to find his own ride home. Has to drop out of his classes because nobody wants to sit next to him in, in school. No girl will talk to him. No one wants him to sign anything. And 30 years later, he's in therapy talking to his therapist about the kick he missed that ruined his whole life, right? And it all hinges on three fancy steps back and two to the side. A couple of seconds, boom, how good are you? Can you make this field goal? Well, sometimes we live our lives like that. Sometimes we put this pressure on ourselves that if we can't perform, everything hinges on it. God won't love us. He can't use us. And we put so much pressure on ourselves that we begin to embrace the kicks that we know we can make. And we make those kicks the most important part of faith and judge everybody else accordingly. And sometimes we put so much pressure on the people who are in our lives that they feel like if they can't make those kicks, that they're failures as well. And friends, that's not embracing the theology of grace. God has made the kick. He's already made the kick through Jesus. And you and I 
we get to celebrate. You're part of the team. Are you gradually absorbing a theology of grace? Is your heart becoming softer? This is a hard one for me. Is your heart becoming softer? Because if it's not becoming softer, it's becoming harder. And friends, harder is not like Jesus. I get the fact that we've been through a couple of years that can make us a little jaded that can make us a little bitter, make us a little guarded and distant, if we're living in the flesh according to self. But if we're living, allowing Jesus to be in charge and control of our life, our hearts grow softer, not harder. How's your heart? Now, I'm not trying to judge you or condemn you Because what's in the past is past. But what you choose today will define and determine what happens tomorrow and this next 12 months we spend together. Number three, am I becoming more forgiving more quickly? Or am I still hanging on to those grudges and bitterness and unforgiveness of the past? Number four, am I becoming less judgmental and proud? These are really important questions to me. These are the themes of our faith. These are some important indicators of our sanctification. So important that we're gonna spend the next 12 months together talking about them, developing them, and embracing them. And we're gonna do it because we want God to be glorified through our lives. And we have to do it together. Let me say that a different way. We get to do that together. And I could not think of another group of people who I would rather grow with and spend these next 12 months with than you guys. Father, thank you so much for my friends.